I said, I said, said great fighter. He fighting 130 pounds. <laughs> no, he said he'll be my what? you will be my what? He's a great fighter. Fight 130. I think he'll be Lomachenko. Mate, you fuck your mind, huh? What you want? City toss pot. You starting to say all these big words? I'm, I'm starting to take it as disrespect. So I'm not sure where. I'm not even sure where I should start. When it comes to Saturday night's boxing, it's just. Hmm. Eddie ran rings around Frank, didn't he? Just ran rings around him again. And if we were to define the lockdown, or look at it as a metaphor, it's kind of like the Tour de France. When the lockdown happened, and there was massive uncertainty, Frank got his skates on, started announcing fights, telling us this is what we've got to look forward to. And he took the lead. And then Hearn just sort of blew him out of the water by saying, well, I'm just going to do fights in my back garden. Beat that. And then that seemed to force Frank into any number of mistakes like he was just making he was making fights that gave the fans what they wanted but put a lot of his assets in jeopardy and now fast forward to the end of March 2021 and you're looking at Eddie going I don't even think it's close between you and Frank there was a time when you looked at the stables and went I'd quite like to see some of these head-to-heads now you look at the stables and like there's there are very few people on that Queensbury boxing register uh, roster that that I care about now. Now I don't know why that is, and I don't know if it's it's tricky. Is it down to they don't invest in building stars? Is it that they don't use the leverage of BT to get the most out of their assets? I have no idea. Is it that a lot of these guys just aren't very good? I know where I'm leaning towards, but that's probably another podcast for another time. But what's clear is Frank Stable is below average at the moment. It's not, it's not what BT Sport would be expecting, considering how much money they've invested in, in upgrading the Warren product. Like His stables are Box Nation stables, not a BT Sport stable. I'd sooner have Mick Hennessy on there than Frank Warren at the moment. Like he, he just seems to be all over the place. That's how I feel. I feel this might be the time where Frank needs to take a break because it wasn't good. You have a doubleheader that no one really watched because on Friday, <laughs> I mean, you basically just took out the, in rugby we call them the shags. That's essentially what you had out on Friday. You had the shags out on Friday, you know, the bin juice. And on the Saturday, to be honest, we were just watching the match from show anyway. So whatever happened on the other side happened. We, we had to catch up with it. So they may as well just have put the thing on YouTube, to be honest with you. Record it on Saturday, put it on YouTube, and don't expect anyone to tune in on BT Sport because... Like I said, Hearn is running rings around Frank. And he's doing this thing that I like, where he's, he's making Frank spend money when he doesn't want to spend money. So if you look at Denzel Bentley versus Felix Cash, could Eddie Hearn make that fight on his platform? Yes. But he's like, I'm going to make Frank pay for that. Because I know I'm draining his money. And he can't be making a lot of money with that stable he's got. And I think that's Eddie Hearn's ultimate aim, is to drive Frank out of business. After that, I don't know what he'll do promotion-wise. 
but he wants to drive Frank out of business. And at some point, he'll come out and be honest and say that. But if we come back to the boxing, how do you summarize last night's card? It was a card that promised so little and delivered so much. And I, I, look, anyone can be negative about a card when, when their default position is to be negative. But I wasn't expecting much from that card. I didn't even expect I'd want to watch it. And I ended up watching it. And I ended up really, really enjoying it. It was, it was good matchmaking. It was intelligent matchmaking. It was how you matchmake for a pay-per-view. I don't know if that was deliberate. I don't know if it was by accident. But they got there in the end. And you've got to give them credit. Was that worth 20 quid? We've paid more for worse pay-per-views than that. And I keep saying this. Dillian delivers better pay-per-views than Joshua. And look, feel free to comment and argue on this point. But this is true. Dillian White delivers better pay-per-views than Joshua. I'd sooner pay the 20 quid to Dillian than Anthony Joshua. It's as simple as that. So one of the things that definitely put a smile on my face for that pay-per-view was watching Yusuf Kamari get his chance. Okay, he didn't make it onto the main TV broadcast. It doesn't matter. He got his opportunity on a big stage against the name that British boxing fans are now aware of. So I'm absolutely delighted that he got to do that. And not only that, but he got to perform. Now, is Yusuf the complete picture? Is he, is he the finished article? Is he as polished as he's going to be? No, he's raw. And he has a lot of the traits I remember when he used to box for Neesden slash IQ, whichever one you want to use. But I've always liked his, his willingness to have a fight and his willingness to... to be creative in the shots that he throws. That's a big thing that I talk about now is do you put shots together in ways your opponent's not going to be able to read? He does that. The shoulder roll's still a bit, uh, and against the elite, they'll pick holes in it. But he's trying, he's learning, and he's developing. That's what I like. He's moving forward. So I think being in Portugal as he was and working closely with Xavier Miller on a daily basis has definitely helped him. I think being around elite guys has helped. You can see in the change in his physique. Well, being in that elite environment has given him advantages. But I, I just enjoyed watching him win. And I remember when he, was it Liam Dillon he fought for the English? And that was a draw. And you felt from them because that was meant to be the, the springboard. But hopefully this fight's the springboard. He's 130 pounds. I mean, there are names in and around that weight that will be good dance partners for him. You know, he, he's not going to be short of dance partners at that weight. But also big respect to Xavier Miller for looking out for his guy. Like, Xavier's had Yusuf by his side for God knows how long now. You know, I'm a fan of Yusuf as well because we train out one, we train out the same gym. Sadly, we train at different times. But there'll be times where he'll post something on Instagram and I'll just message him going, you see those dents in the bag next to you? I left those for you. Or just something like that, you know. But we don't train at the same time. So it's him, me and Prince Patel all in the same gym, but never at the same time. But he's a class kid, man. He, he can box. What I like about him as well is he can finish. You know, there's nothing better than a boxer that can finish, as far as I'm concerned. And he knows how to finish people off. You know, the defense will tighten up. I think some of the ring generalship and IQ will come in as well. But what a springboard for his career. So let's see what happens next. Will will Herm put him on mainstream non-pay-per-view shows? Don't know. 
It might just be another Dillian project, kind of like Chris Congo is. But here's my concern. A guy like Yusuf Kamari needs to fight three times this year. Can Dillian guarantee that? I don't know. You know. I don't know what the relationship still is with Steve Goodwin, whether Yusuf can then you know, slide down and have a few fights on Goodwin shows and maybe the Sky Sports exposure gets some more ticket sales. I don't know. But he needs to fight three more times this year to get that career momentum going again. But it's also tip our hats off to Kane Baker. I think he's conducted himself brilliantly in the build-up to this. And he's done his reputation absolutely no harm at all. I'm sure he will rebuild, and it might be through BCB, it might be through other channels, but he will come again. So kudos to him. And I also love how he, even in his lowest moment, was able to still congratulate and shine some light on Lennox Clark's achievement, which we'll discuss later on, but kudos to him. And he's, as he said himself, he's a fan who said, I could do it better myself. Lost the weight, got in shape, tried it, realized it's a lot harder than it looks on the other side, but has still acquitted himself well. So you've got to salute him and onwards and upwards for both guys. I think, you know, there doesn't always have to be a, you know, a loser goes up, a loser. The winner goes up, the loser goes down scenario. Sometimes win or lose and everyone's enhanced. And I think in that fight there, there are two guys who we will likely see again on a, on a Sky TV show. So from guys who've had to graft and, and sort of claw themselves up, we now go to young Campbell Hatton, who, you know, with all the best will in the world, has had, you know, had an opportunity handed to him by virtue of his name. And I think I've touched on this before. It seems Hearn is dispensing with the traditional route of having to earn your place on a televised show or having to even earn your place on a pay-per-view card. And instead, his thing is anything that drives numbers is getting on. So knowing that you're going to get Ricky Hatton doing interviews, Ricky Hatton's going to be in there, did exactly the same thing with Conor Ben and tried to do exactly the same thing with Eubank Jr., except Eubank Sr. wasn't prepared to be a puppet for anybody. So Campbell Hatton comes on. I have no idea how old the kid is. Well, he's a teenager, isn't he? 18, 19? No idea. But he, he looks like a kid that should be doing work experience at, at Mike Harvey's garage somewhere near Stockport. Do you know what I mean? He looks like that sort of kid. He looks callow. He looks young. But there's something there. Just like there was with Conor Ben, there's something there that we're all going to have to wait for. So I'm not going to judge him today. I'm not going to say, ah, he was terrible on his debut. He should have knocked the guy out. Mm-mm. The time to judge young Campbell happens two years from now. Once they've got the professional lifestyle in him, once he's had a chance to harden up and fill out a bit, then let's see. Because we learned with Conor Ben, we are going to watch these guys screw up on TV. We're going to watch the, the genesis and the metamorphosis of a professional boxer live on our screens. This is reality TV in a boxing context. And so you can't be too hard on him until it's time to really assess him. And his debut is not the time. You know, you just had to get that out of the way. You know, you get Ricky there, you know what I mean? Put these videos up of him eating breakfast and whatnot. God, hasn't he let himself go? Jesus. Like... You know when you see someone in that kind of state and you're like, man, you're going to be dead by 50. And it's sad. I don't say that with any pride. I'm like, you're going to be dead by 50. 
and there's something in you that says, I'm not prepared to, to take care of myself. I don't care how I look. I don't care how I feel. And I feel for Ricky in that sense because it seems to have plagued him his whole career. And you wonder what he could have achieved had he been a bit more disciplined. And you're just seeing, like, just now in his 40s, he's not that much older than me, but he looks about 55. But he does numbers because he, appear, he appeals to the beer, boobs, and birds brigade, you know. Ricky! Ricky Atten! Uh, Ricky! Ricky! You're out, Ricky! You know all those people that fawn over him and Calzaghi and it never makes any sense because they're not true greats of the game. People just jumped on planes to watch these guys, man. You know I mean, <laughs> that's why the Americans wish they had British fans like that. But I don't want to let the sins of the father tarnish the son. I want to see what Campbell Hatton does in about two, two and a half years from now. And then let's see. I'll even forgive him a couple of defeats up until then. Like I was prepared to do with Conor Ben. And let's see, because now look at Conor. Conor's now coming good. But he needed those years of purgatory. And Campbell Hatton's going to need them too. All you can say is, as boxing fans, let's not be too hard on the kid. Ooh. Do we want to talk about the big boys now? Nick Webb, Fabio Wardley. <sighs> we seem to have a lot of heavyweights in this country, and they all seem to be kind of meandering in this sea of mediocrity, and no one's putting them in with each other, apart from Frank, paradoxically. So, you know, Eddie needs to start putting these guys in together because we're getting bored of watching them fight people who are not showing up to fight. So... Nick Webb, and this is a guy, I feel, in fact, I feel strongly about both guys because I quite like Fabio and I quite like Nick. I know Fabio better than I know Nick, but I think in the lockdown, Nick's story's been easier to follow just because we have people in common. And it was, like, people looking at Nick Webb like, mate, when are you going to come good? It's like eight years since you're a good amateur and we haven't seen the performance. Anyone that remembers his fight against, uh, what's the guy's name, Harley Miles? Harry Miles, sorry will remember, like, you're just like, I don't see what it is with this guy. But whatever you want to say, Nick Webb can dig. There were rumours of him putting Dubois on his back, right? There are rumours. I can't say whether it's true or not, but there were rumours about that. And there are other stories of Nick Webb hitting people with those big shots and them just going over. So he's a, he's a good test of a chin. You know, I know we've put guys in with Nick Webb just to make sure that they're ready for the onslaught. So what you know for certain is if Nick hits you, you're going over. And I think his challenge is always, can he maintain the intensity of a professional heavyweight fight round after round in order to land those shots? And I think you're going to see now with the time he spends with Scott Welch, he's going to become a bit more refined in how he does that. And I think you saw bits of that against Eric Fyfen. Let's just pause for a second. Just pause. Who the hell told us Eric Fyfen was any good? Well, he was a good amateur, and he did all of these things as an amateur, and, you know, Daniel Dubois didn't want to fight him, and yep, 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 yep. But I don't tell you, this guy's in his 30s, man. We didn't even know who he was before the Dubois thing. But her knew. Jump, jump on that goodwill and extend it, and now he can say, right, look, Nick Webb beat this guy comfortably. I'm not sure if Dubois would have. And you start to put Nick Webb in that sort of company, which I'm not prepared to do right now. Yeah, you, Dubois versus Webb. 
Uh, who knows, actually? Let me be real. Who knows? But I know that's what Scott Welch wants now. He, he's wanted to be a player in the heavyweight game for a long time. His son, Tom, is a decent, decent boxer as well. So he's starting to build something down in Brighton. And fair play to him because like, he knows the game. And he's always willing to help. Like, that's why I've got a lot of time in, in terms of Scott. He's a good guy like that. So I wish Nick all the best. Um, he got the win he should have got. Onwards and upwards for him. He, he must be knocking on a British title shot at some point. And, you know, I'm not going to begrudge him that opportunity. Fabio look at differently. I, I just, I like Fabio. I like who he is. I like how he conducts himself. He's got that real East Anglian friendliness and approachability. And he doesn't seem jaded or cynical, which I like about him. And he's a great talker. Like, he can sell himself. And he can fight too. He, he looks good. At the level he's boxing at, at the moment, he looks really, really good. I wish, like I said, back to the expression I used before, I wish he could bring a sustained level of intensity to each round and put that psychological pressure on his opponent to be thinking, Jesus, I can't breathe. And if you want a good example of that, go back and watch Tony Yoka versus Big Joe Jekko. Just go and watch what Yoka does with his feet and he never allows range to extend beyond mid-range. And what that does for someone is he just says, this guy's not going to stop punching until I give up or until the ref hits the bell or the timekeeper hits the bell. It's insane. Like Being able to do that is the difference between being a good prospect or a good boxer and being elite. Joshua can do that. You know, At various points in the fight, Joshua will squeeze you psychologically. And if you can't withstand that, like I remember Gary Cornish folding as soon as that pressure came on. And a lot of people struggle with it, except for Andy Ruiz, who was like, yeah, I've had this before. Now, I'm back here talking about Eric Molina, for God's sake. I just think Eric Molina is a disgrace. I think he's terrible. I think he's been terrible for years. He's, he's like the Latino Malik Scott. They're just guys who, They just suck your love of boxing away from you, man. They draw that spirit out of you. You just go, how is this guy still stealing a living out of the sport? Why does Hearn keep working with a guy who said he doesn't like Hearn? He doesn't want to work with him again. How on earth has this happened? Can someone explain to me how the hell we're still watching Eric Molina on pay-per-view? He's terrible. He's actually terrible and you can't say he's gutless and you can't say he's not tough he's all of those things but he's like if ever anyone's worked in a call center you will know what i'm talking about there's always that person that comes in at 9 15 for a 9 a.m start they take an extra 20 minutes on their lunch break and then when you start to put them through the disciplinary process they're like well why can't i do that you know i'm still doing my job i'm still doing it as good as anyone else and you're like yeah, but you're not trying and you're not doing all the other things that are important here. And Molina's like that. He doesn't do the things that are important. He doesn't come to test anyone. And for what I'm about to say, I place no responsibility on, on Team Wardley at all. But as soon as Molina got touched in a way that allowed him to fall over, he fell over. He threw himself on the canvas. And then he made sure he landed flat on his back so he wouldn't hurt himself. Let the count of 10 happen. 
and then started protesting about being hit on the back of the head as if he hadn't even been hit in the first place. Now, I don't know how you, you go back and determine whether someone just threw themselves on the floor or not, but I wouldn't have given the guy his purse for that because that gave Fabio Wardley nothing. Fabio learned very little from that. He wasn't really challenged. He was able to pretty much do what he wanted to the point where he was getting bored in there by his own admission. Molina stole from the fans last night. Molina stole from you guys who paid, and even you guys that streamed. He stole something from you that night. I mean, he stole it. I know a lot of people say, oh, you're overly negative. When it comes to guys like Molina, yeah, because Jesus Christ, at least try. At least try your best. Like I say, Fabio did everything he was supposed to. He's coming along nicely and shouts out to all the guys in Norwich, Graham Everett and all those people doing a fantastic job with him. Remember, this is a guy that hasn't really had the, the schooling everyone else has. Yet every day, every week, he closes that gap. He closes it. To the point now where we're looking at him fighting Nick Webb, who's a former ABA finalist or champion. I never really remember with him. And they're going to fight at some point. And would you make Fabio the favorite? I would. That shows how far he has come. And that's credit to him. He stayed true to his people in Norwich. I know everyone's tried to drag him here, there, and everywhere over the last three years or so. But fair play to him. Like I've seen him. I've seen him spar Derek. Derek couldn't put him down. Derek didn't really rock him. He's a tough kid. So I, I'm excited to see what Fabio Wardley does. Is there a ceiling to what he can do? Potentially. But if you can get the performances out of him that they got out of Joshua, and the way that he talks and puts it all together, he's more money in the sport than Joshua if he can hook it up to the same level. But that's a big ask of anybody, because I think Joshua, in terms of mindset, dedication, and sacrifice, I think he's just on a different level to almost any other boxer. And I will always salute him for being insanely driven to succeed. So now I come to the, the personal disappointment of the night for me. And that was Chris Congo losing to Michael McKinson. And look, in the build-up, I was hearing people say, look, M Michael's a problem, and I don't know if Chris is going to have it his own way. And I could see that. But it, Chris should have the tools in his arsenal, and he should have the experience now that that shouldn't be an issue for him. And I'm gutted for Chris. I don't think he's one of those guys that needs an undefeated record, but it was helpful in promoting him because he's one of those guys you don't necessarily need. And when you're in that position, you need all the leverage you can get. So Chris, oh man, it's tough because I like Chris. I think Chris is a great human being. He's, he's fantastic. I struggle to understand what the plan was. And this isn't the first time we've said this about a Jimmy Mack fighter. And when you speak to people who take their boxes away from Jimmy Mack, the thing you always hear is, okay, he's going to make them fit, but he's not going to make them better. And I think that's the challenge Chris has got at the moment. He's still young enough that he can fulfill his potential. I just don't think you do it with Jimmy Mack. Just my opinion. I don't think anyone has ever gone to Jimmy Mack and come out that process better. I think, and I think I tweeted this as well, Jimmy Mack will take amazing talents and make them average. It's a gift. He's mastered that. 
that setup there. I've always thought it was a hoax. All of it from top to bottom. I think it's all a hoax. That doesn't mean I don't respect those guys as elders and people who put it down in the sport because I absolutely do. But in terms of them producing people who are good, it's a hoax because that should be a production line by now. They've been in and around that. There's a club KO. They've been around there for long enough, but they're not churning out these guys. Let's see. James DeGale, massively underachieved. Yeah. For what he was capable of, massively underachieved. Who's the other guy that they ruined? Reese Bellotti, massively underachieved. Jake Ball, massively underachieved. Now we're looking at Chris Congo. This is it's a graveyard. And I'm gutted for Chris, but Chris also has to take accountability for his career and say, am I in the environment where I'm going to be the best welterweight this country's produced in a generation? The answer to that right now is no. Could he have gone to Shane McGuigan earlier in his career? I heard it was a potential offer. Why isn't he there now? Could he go with Ben Davidson and spend time with Josh Taylor? Would that have been beneficial against Michael McKinson? Maybe. But if I'm asking these questions and thinking these things, what the hell is happening at Club KO? And I'd be looking at it. If I had guys in that camp, I don't care if it's Jimmy Mack or whoever, if I had guys in that camp, I'd be pulling them out saying, this isn't good. I may as well just have these guys with Tony Sims or Mark Tibbs. The thing is, that whole Essex thing is just much of a muchness. It's, it's meat and potatoes boxing with some hill sprints, some hill runs, some push-ups, some pull-ups, and a load of sweat. Not a lot of education, not a lot of theory being explained, not a lot of challenging people. It worries me. And it's always worried me that people are buying into these myths. But that's what Chris got caught out by, because you're not supposed to come from Portsmouth. Amateur or pro, you're not supposed to come from Portsmouth and cause anyone from London trouble. But McKinson did it, so you've got to salute him. And you've got to say, do you know what, Michael McKinson? You showed up. Now, you can't coach that. That ability to show up, that desire to execute, that thing that says, I'm not leaving here a loser, you can't coach that. Michael McKinson has it in spades. And so that's how he was able to win. What do you do with Chris now? I think Chris is now a more viable opponent now that he's lost. He's mortal now. So he'll probably get more fights. But that's all he needs. Like, it's like I said with Yusuf Kamari. Chris Conga needs to fight six times in the next probably 15 to 18 months. Doesn't even matter who he fights. He's just got to fight. And so he's got to find himself a scenario, a situation, a position where he's able to do that. And that's on him now. How much is he willing to take control of his career to be the man in that ring and say, right, this is a setup I need to be amazing. You know, we're going to see if Chris has championship ambitions now based on what he does with his setup. Because that setup he has is area level at best. And Chris is, he's an international level talent. There's no debating that. You know, and I know people are going to go, well, what's that based on? You've got to think about the family Chris Congo comes from, for goodness sake. Chris Congo. Um, I'm going to call them all Congos, actually, because if I go Mbwa Congo, I never know how to say it properly because I'm not Congolese, right? You've got Chris, you've got Obed, you've got Elvis. I think all three of those guys boxed internationally. If I'm wrong, correct me. I think they're all ABA champions, and I think they all box internationally, or they're all ABA finalists and box internationally. 
that's a good family. That's a solid family to come from. So that's like Aidan and Michaela Walsh. That's like the Smith brothers. So why aren't the, I mean, why aren't the Congo brothers at that level? I don't know. What I do know is Chris is the brightest talent of all of them, and he deserves better. So my question back to Chris is, are you going to go after what's, what you deserve? And to do that, are you willing to leave behind you those people that have held you back? So now to the fight of the night. And I think we now agree as a boxing community, if your pay-per-view ain't popping, if your car's looking flat, if you've run out of inspiration of how to take your pay-per-view to the next level, just call Ted. I don't know what it is about Ted Cheeseman, but Ted Cheeseman just gives you what you paid money for. So if you remember, even back to the fight with Carson Jones, Ted was on a different level because he took a shellacking and came back. And so you have this guy, JJ Metcalf, who there's just <laughs> there's a lot of noise at Liverpool again. Like, I don't know what it is about Liverpool. And, you know, you've got to kind of love them because they back their own so hard. But if you'd believed what was coming out of Liverpool, J.J. Metcalf was unlucky not to be born the same time as Mayweather, or he would have handed Mayweather at least two defeats. You know, J.J. Metcalf was like the best, I mean, was it junior middleweight on the planet? Like a guy who could have taken the Charles hardest punch and walked him down. And all of this stuff we were hearing, it was absolutely insane. Because they forgot who Ted is. Ted's a guy that, had he wanted to, probably could have gone to the Olympics. Had there, not, had there not been this massive loving with Pat McCormack, Ted could have gone to the Olympics. What that would have done for his style, I have no idea. Would he be a different boxer now? Maybe. Would he be getting hit so much? Probably not. But he wouldn't be the man you call to save a pay-per-view, though, would he? Because Ted delivers in that ring. It's, it's a bittersweet compliment because I kind of know that there's a real risk to his health. But as a boxing fan, I enjoy guys who bring it. And he brought it. And to give JJ Metcalf his due, he brought it as well. And those guys went for it. But what happened over time, and this is generally what happens, the class told out in the long run. You can get so far on being a hard man, being a tough guy, being this, being that before the class starts to tell. And I know you guys are then going, Terry, what do you mean by class? Tell me. Do tell, as Omar said in The Wire. Do tell. So what I mean is, Ted's punches will be more accurate. They'll be more targeted. Ted's more efficient. So he's hitting the bits that will hurt you. The chin, the nose, around the eyes, around the temple. is what he's aiming for. Where someone like J.J. Metcalf's just trying to hit something. So those body shots that Ted was throwing, although they were less frequent than we're used to, they're landing right where you want them to land. That accuracy and that consistency is what chips away at your opponent. So by the 11th round, even though Metcalf had Ted hurt, Ted had more in the tank to then come back and then you know, finish the round off with that left hook. And that is his money punch. Why he doesn't focus more on that, I don't understand. And people say, oh, you're just kissing ass. When Donald Smith worked with him in that, Fitzgerald fight he took less punishment and looked better but somehow I feel Ted likes to have a tear up but he was lacking that, that, that extra bit of polish that I think Don gave him that, 
desire to, to really punch in combinations, which, to be honest, would have got Medcalf out of there sooner. And I think Ted's got to go back to who and what he really is. And he's a, he's a mid- and close-range combination puncher. That's Ted Cheeseman. Tighten up your defense, understand how you want to work on the inside, and just break guys down. Because I genuinely think Ted will always be able to do the 12. And it's just about whether he can put enough psychological pressure on his opponents to make them break. But I enjoyed Ted's fight. And I know you can give Ted criticism all the time, and people give him a hard time. He sounds punchy. He looks weird. Forget all of that for a second. Ted doesn't let you down in that ring. And when you're putting a pay-per-view card together, you've got to anchor it with guys like Ted Cheeseman, guys who will put it on the line. You can even put someone like Fowler in there. You know, that's what you're paying your 20 pounds for. Now, if you could get a card full of those sorts of fights, we wouldn't make so much noise against Sky. So credit to Eddie for getting it right. Like, I still have to salute him for getting it right in that sense. Because that's what we wanted to see. We want to see more fights like that, where guys we get behind finally get tested, although in Ted's case, he's always tested. So fair play to him for having a a no-filler career. You know, something we should all respect. So it's only right we talk about the main event, I guess. Um, Dillian White versus Alexander Kovitkin, because he looked like he had just come out of St. Mary's Hospital, man, Ward 17G. He did not look in a good way. And that's not to detract from what Dillian did, because you've got to remember, Dillian prepares for the best version of Povetkin they could possibly be. It's just that this version of Povetkin looked... Hmm... <laughs> Let's call it what it is, right? Because, A, COVID's not a joke. And we know people who have been impacted by it adversely. You know, I've had friends who have had to go through it and they've had the long COVID too. So it's not a joke. The problem you have is essentially when you come out of COVID, there's a risk of blood clots and there's a risk of these blood clots ending up in your brain or whatever. So what they tend to give you is blood thinners so you so it reduces the risk of clotting and then it gives time for the existing clots to kind of you know break up and dissolve so i think one of the key things with that is it means you can't drink and i imagine it means you can't take any form of steroids for example right and so maybe in alexander povetkin what we saw was the guy who threw covid couldn't take his normal blend of you know nuts berries and juices because he looked 41 years old on Saturday night. He looked like a 41-year-old man. He looked like someone who had played sport for a long, long time, and now the body's just not responding. And there's no shame in that, because if you go back through history, it happened to Sugar Ray, it happened to Muhammad Ali, it happened to George Foreman, it happens to everybody. Everybody gets old and is visible. And so I guess without that, that secret blend of nuts, berries, and juices, Alexander Povetkin wasn't able to be the Povetkin of old. You know, that secret blend of nuts, berries, and juices is actually really important. So Povetkin comes in and he looks like, he literally looks like he's just come for the payday. Like he realizes he's not going to get another pay-per-view gig. Well, <laughs> I say that, but fully expect him to fight one of Chisora or Parker before the end of the year. 
So, so Povetkin comes and Dillian comes. Dillian's five pounds lighter. And all kidding aside, Dillian looks like he means business. It's the best I've seen Dillian look. Uh, just wherever you want to slice and dice it, it's the best I've seen Dillian look physically. So the time in Portugal yielded results. Now, were there things you could see in Dillian that were different? Yes. He, he positioned himself behind his jab probably for the first time. Now, anyone that's ever met Dillian in person knows he's about two and a half miles wide. So when Dillian squares up, he's a massive target to hit, and you can't protect all of that, that land mass, essentially. You can't protect all of that. So he's quite easy to hit. And it seems that what's happened in the new regime is they've got him lining up behind his lead hand. And so what that enables him to do is to have his back leg back already so he can just shuffle back when he needs to give himself two or three inches and make Povetkin miss. What it also does is it, it gives an advantage to his long arms because now he can throw straight punches. Before, that's what you used to hear. Dillian just throws big looping punches. He hasn't got any this, any that. He threw a lot of straight punches. I know like when he had Povetkin hurt, he started to do that big right-hand bomb that he does. He looked like Kurt Ambrose doing that or Ian Bishop. He's just trying to bomb him out of there. And then ironically, the punch that really did Povetkin was just a simple straight, straight right down the pipe. And it's a reminder that the most basic punches are the most effective. But I liked to see that with Dillian. He had better footwork. And I know, um, I, I'll shout him out, David Peach asked me on Twitter, you know, why does he look so clumsy? Sometimes it looks clumsy to us, but it might be a, a place of comfort for him. You see what I mean? You can make a style work if you dedicate yourself to it for long enough. Prince Nassim's style doesn't make any sense. Remember, he had those same criticisms. Oh, he's all over the place. Look, his hands are down. He's hopping around. He's off balance. Anyone with you know, a half-decent boxing IQ will take him out. It took Barrera to beat him. And it took Barrera to beat Naz at a weight Naz should never have been at, if we're being honest. And that's not making excuses. I think Barrera is special. I think Barrera beats any version of Naz. But what I'm saying is guys like Kevin Kelly were no mugs, and they couldn't really figure that style out. Muhammad Ali, greatest heavyweight ever? Undoubtedly. Best technician ever? God, no. Threw his jab from down low, threw his jab from here, there, and everywhere. Used to wind up his uppercuts, which is how Eddie Futch was able to take advantage. Ali did a lot of things wrong. People say Dillian crosses his legs. Okay, Lomachenko crosses his legs. But when Loma does it, we put it down to the Ukrainian folk dancing that he learned. Do you see what I mean? Most things are about perception. The fact is Dillian's been able to make the style work, and there aren't many people that have been able to defeat that style. Long may it continue. If you try to make him more conventional... You might take more away from him than you give to him. So I'm not saying that what Dillian does is right. What I'm saying is what Dillian does works for him. And you're better enhancing that than trying to change it at the stage in his career. But I liked what I saw in Dillian. Patient, considerate, didn't rush his work. He knew Povetkin wasn't, he just wasn't at the races. So he said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do this in my own time. And he did what he had to do. Uh, 
I'm not going to be here giving him a kicking for beating a 41-year-old Povetkin because we didn't know who the hell was going to walk through that curtain. You know, I'd, uh, I had no idea that, I mean, Sophia Petrillo was going to walk out there on a Zimmer frame just going, God, just give me my money and let me go home. But Dillian did what he had to do. I'm happy for him. It's another win for South London, and we've got to give him credit because Dillian looks after his people. How many times in boxing do you see someone do that? Chris Congo, Dillian looked out for him. Anyone that Dillian's cool with, he looks out for you. As long as you back him, he backs you. So kudos to him. And what he also does is he holds you accountable for your performances. So I, I have nothing negative to say about Dillian's performance. I'm, I'm happy he won. I now want us to unravel this puzzle, which is what do you do with Dillian White? I found it interesting, I found it strange that Hearn didn't even say, look, if we can't get the Fury fight done, who wants to see AJ Dillian? Strange that that wasn't discussed, just putting it out there. Because that suggests to me, if Fury versus Joshua isn't made, and this weekend has confirmed to us that nothing's actually been signed, but if that fight's not made, I feel we're going to hit mandatory season and one of the belts may have to be given up. Because there hasn't been an IBF mandatory in God knows when. There hasn't been a WBO mandatory in God knows when, and Usyk would like to enforce that. <laughs> I've, I've given up trying to find a WBA mandatory slot because that's not never going to happen. And then for Fury's side, I don't think he's due a WBC mandatory for a while. So if, if Fury Joshua doesn't get made, it's going to be hard to have the belts concentrated in two people for much longer. But puts Dillian in a bind because he's committed to that WBC route. This is a time when Hearn should have been spreading out that risk and saying, if Josh has got to give up a belt, why doesn't Dillian fight for it? Because like I said, deep down, I don't think the Hearns care about Dillian. I think Dillian is just there to disrupt and block anyone from getting to AJ. Dillian should be fighting AJ if the Fury fight's not made. Okay. So I'm going to put it to you guys listening. Simple yes or no. If the Fury-Joshua fight's not made, doesn't it make sense to have Fury versus Wilder, Joshua versus Dillian? The winners fight each other, the losers fight each other on the undercard. Done. We've, we've sorted out all of heavyweight boxing politics in a year. So why isn't Hearn talking like this? The reason he's not talking like this is that Dillian fight is the cash-out fight for AJ. Fight Fury twice, probably lose one of them, if not both. And then it's like, right, Dillian, Wembley, this is a chance to give the fans what they want. I, I, it feels like that's where it's headed, but I'd like to see Dillian in that mix if the Fury-Joshua fight isn't made, which I don't think is going to be made because, as I said before, look at the windows that it can happen. Right? So nothing can happen between now and May because that's Canelo Saunders, and Hearn's got to do his, you know, his apples and pears routine until then. So there's a window for it to happen a couple of months afterwards, July, but everyone's on their summer holes in July, right? So it can't happen then. August? No, because now you're into Canelo's Mexican Independence Day fight, which might be Caleb Plant, which might be Charlo, we don't know. Okay, so then you've got to give that time to breathe. Now you're into October, November. 
could happen then. But that means Fury's been inactive for 18 months. So now Tyson Fury's got a fight at some point. It's probably going to be in July. He needs some downtime and some uptime. So he can't take this fight before December. That means Joshua's been inactive for a year. Now Joshua needs to take a fight. So now we're looking at April 2022 for the fight to realistically happen. So what's going to happen in this year? Let, jo let Joshua fight Dillian, for God's sake. Just stop dicking around and pretending we care about anything else. Let Joshua fight Dillian. You know, Povetkin will go and fight one of Chisora or Parker. Yeah, put Cheeseman on both undercards and then we're all happy. That's all I want to see. If Cheeseman's on an undercard, I'm buying the pay-per-view, man, because he's the only one that's going to entertain me. But, yeah, I guess that just anchors my point that the heavyweight situation now is utter chaos, but Dillian deserves his shot against Joshua. Him versus Fury, no real interest in, just because you have to build a story to make me interested in that one. What would be bad is if they start fobbing Dillian off to you know, people that he's probably slightly better than. You know, I'm, uh, let me not name names in case I bump into people, but you can figure out who I mean. But that's how I feel. I feel Dillian did what he was supposed to do. He's, he's got himself back in that kind of mix. He's in that top five mix comfortably now. I think Povetkin slid right out of there based on that performance and the fact that he now looks 41 years old without his mix of, I mean, nuts, berries, and juices. So overall, kudos to Hearn for a decent card. I did, I, didn't mind that. I have nothing negative to say about that card overall. He wasn't even overly Eddie Hearn on this one, which was good. So I didn't feel sick to my stomach. I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know how I feel on May 1st, but it's Spider Richards, so I'm going to back that. If they can get Eddie Scottney on there, that would be God, the boxing gods rewarding me for being a good human being. But no, kudos to that. Now, as Jay-Z said, there's heaven and there's hell. One day you're cruising in a seven, next day... Alibis ain't matching up, bullshit catching up, you know. If you know the song, you know the song. But there's heaven and there's hell. Hell, Queensbury Promotions, BT Sport, Purgatory, utter hell. Ah. So let's just call it what it is, right? Frank basically takes whatever stable he's got, splits it into two. First 15 and the bin juice. Right? So Bin Juice gets out on the Friday, except for David Adelaide, who's not Bin Juice. He's pretty good. But overall, production wise, it's all Bin Juice on the Friday. I don't care what anyone says. That's Bin Juice. And so Saturday, we expect to see a bit more sophistication. Do we get that? Do we? Hell. You could have combined the best of both cards, and it still would have been terrible. That was, a, that was two mediocre small hall cards, and they got the outcomes they deserved. I was gutted on Saturday for, for Big Steph, um, Lawrence's friend Stephen Adenatan, who on his debut got iced, unfortunately. And it was tough to watch. I, I know him reasonably well. He's, a, he's legit a good guy. He's a lot of fun. And I know he had built up to this for a long time. And I'm just absolutely gutted for him that has gone that way. And it was all of just a really basic mistake. Like, when you've got the height and the reach advantage, you can circle to your right all night against an orthodox fighter and you'll be safe. 
and you will find a home for that right hand. He had no business stepping to his left without cover fire. And so he got caught, and it was just it was tough to watch that. Because obviously when you've got, when you've got personal skin in the game, you're like, ah But you lost on your debut. I think Juan Manuel, Juan Manuel Marquez did, didn't he? Or did he draw? Uh, who else? Bernard Hopkins lost on his debut. A few people have lost on their debut. Now the question is, does he really want to box? I hope he does, because we're going to find out over the next 12 months or so. So, you know, Frank had been hyping him up. Bang. That's one, that's one snipered off. Willie Hutchinson, who, for the record, I've never understood the noise around Willie Hutchinson. Do you remember about five years ago, people were just crowing because he won a World Junior Championship? <laughs> how cringeworthy. That's how you're going to sell me a fighter. He won a World Junior Championship. And since then has done absolutely nothing, by the way. Done nothing to justify the hype. That he's the reason David just stopped the whole Haymaker Ringstar thing. Because he was like, look, look at, look at the dregs that I've got on my stable here. Apart from Joe Joyce, who's stellar. I've got an MMA guy playing at boxing. Shouts out to Michael Venom Page. He's actually a good guy, but he's no boxer. I've got this Willie Hutchinson kid who actually isn't even better than John Doherty, who is a six and a half out of ten boxer. Right? Willie Hutchinson is no better than John Dock, factual. And I've got Kesh Ashfak, who, for all of his talents, hasn't actually shown us anything, and in the Olympics was shown to be pretty fragile. So you've got all of this, and Willie Hutchinson fights Lennox Clark. I like Lennox Clark. Lennox Clark's just a tough brum, isn't he? Just a guy who, who's just there to put hands on you. And he... He did what, what grown men do. He put the beating on the youngster. He beat him up. And the way he knocked him out, that, that jab, and then just stepped in with that right kind of hook, just stepped in with it. Bang! Hutchinson's against the ropes, chin in the air. Won't be doing that again in his career, I can promise you. But that's it. That's, that was Frank's stable extinguished now. Now you look at Frank and... Frank now knows he's down to his bare bones, right? So who's he going to lead off with? Dennis McCann, real deal. I can see how he's, he's considered, you know, one of Frank's jewels. Denzel Bentley, I think is one of Frank's jewels. I wish Frank would invest a lot more in him. You know, like, there should be... Frank should be putting his hand in his pocket saying, mate, I want you to go out to America to spar the Charles and Errol Spence. I need you to come back better. Frank should have been doing that. You know... They should. The fact that they haven't done that shows you how, how backwards these guys are thinking. So then you look, you've got Dubois and Joyce as your heavyweights, that's fine, but we're still not looking at any great depth here. You know, this is a time where you've got to phone Daryl Williams and say, I'm sorry, we disrespected you, it'll be better this time round. But there's no one really, I know Piers O'Leary is making some noise, but I don't even know if he's a Queensbury guy. Archie Sharp, maybe, at a push. But you're, you're struggling to find people on that Frank Warren roster where you're like, I'd pay 20 quid to watch these guys fight. How has he got it so wrong? Like, Frank's been in the sport 40 years. They're doing a documentary on 40 years, and that's the rubbish you're going to serve up to us. That's an absolute disgrace.
And it's not, I, don't, I think Frank's just cutting his clothes according to his cloth, man. I just think British boxing is so devoid of talent that Frank's like, these are the best we have in the country. And he's probably looking at guys like me going, what's happening in the amateur gyms? Why are you sending us this rubbish? But that's what Frank gets when he's trying to... He's signing a lot of guys that I think are Goodwin fighters. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, Goodwin ain't shit. No, I'm saying that because Steve puts on good small hall shows and then Steve's aim is to guide you from that to a British or Commonwealth title fight and then go from there. And a lot of these guys should be going that route. They shouldn't be on TV because there's nothing about them skill-wise, personality-wise or anything that warrants that. These are... It's like comparing Hearn and Warren right now is like comparing Space in Ibiza with Harrogate Working Men's Club. Do you know what I mean? Like on a Friday night, where would you rather be? Space, you know what I mean? God rest his soul. Or Harrogate Working Men's Club. And Frank refuses to step away from being, you know, popular amongst that working, club, working men's club scene. You know, wow, as long as the card's proper. And... It, it, I guess it's got its place. But you must be a Frank Warren fighter going, this is a sinking ship. And you're telling me, based on that, Frank couldn't get Dan Aziz on board and say, let me just upskill my, my capabilities here. Really? Dan Aziz, based on what I saw Friday and Saturday, you're telling me BT Sport can't put Dan Aziz on and do something with Dan Aziz. And it hurts me because I'm looking at it going, you're putting that bin juice out on a Friday and John Pilata can't get a fight. Wow, okay, cool. It, it's just disgraceful. And as boxing fans, I wouldn't be surprised if the viewing figures showed. Combine the streams and the pay-per-view buys. I wouldn't be surprised if no one saw Frank Warren's shows on Friday or Saturday. I wouldn't be surprised at all because that was utter bin juice. And until he works out how to do this again, where he gets his mojo back, Hearn is going to run him into the ground. I promise you, he will run him into the ground and then just leave boxing because it's mission accomplished. But look, I just wanted to do a summary of, of the shows. I know people say, why don't you talk much about the Friday show? Like I told you, it's just bin juice. So I'd rather use my time for more productive things. But... I'll probably kick something out in the week and I don't know what topic it will be. I know people want to hear me talk about how bad British trainers are again, but I think I've done it to death. About how British boxing is in a dark place. Probably done that to death. That's up to you guys to share it with your people and the people you know in boxing and say, listen, you're part of this problem. What's your solution? Because you know? I think a lot of trainers, a lot of promoters, a lot of managers have got away without being held accountable for the dross that we get to watch. So it's time people start asking those tough questions and start saying, well, actually, we need to hold you guys accountable for ruining our love of boxing. But I'm going to leave that to you guys. You guys know what to do. But I'm going to, you know I mean, go and enjoy the rest of my day. But listen, have a great day. And what is it now? Two weeks till the gym's open. Let's give thanks. Take care, guys. Bye. My everything, the music I laughed, the music I danced, back the music I lost, the brave chosen path, it sheds light when times get dark. 
when I'm down The music I trust to pick me up, put me on my feet I'm eclectic when it comes to music cause the sound's unique Music has the power to teach, the power to reach anyone who listens Biggest force in the world and I cherish his existence That's why I'm on the route of music and I show persistence Good music motivates, so do good friends, so what's the difference? Friends can pretend music extends your interest in your commitments Music is what makes us all move Sometimes helps our mind choose Determines what we like sometimes and who we relate to It's a dream for most to make music So they don't pursue the root of music